This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello, I'm Jake Cantor and welcome to a special edition of Talking TV. Telly bigwigs, including Adam Crozier and David Abraham, were speaking at a broadcast-hosted media conference in London on Wednesday. Talking TV was on the ground to bring you all the action and we'll chew over the day's major themes right here. Also on the show, we welcome one of the biggest names in television drama. Andrew Davis will be in the studio to talk about BBC One series Quirk and much more besides. So get yourself comfortable and enjoy the show. In the studio this week, we have broadcast editor Chris Curtis. Uh, busy few days at Broadcast Tower with uh, Creative Week. Yeah, Good. Creative Week's gone very well. We had a, a Diversify event, which is obviously a hot topic at the moment. Plenty of passionate people uh, there. Media Summit. And uh, later on, I have to run away from this podcast to go and host a uh, session at our international TV forum where we've got all the distributors and producers together talking about sales around the world. You talk about diversity in your leader this week. Targets with teeth. That's the, the new mantra. It's, it feels like this is really gathering momentum, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, I think there's an acceptance now that things need to change. It all started with these creative skill set figures that came out a little while ago now that showed the, the really poor performance that TV um, has in terms of ethnic diversity. And there's a groundswell now, some momentum, and there's even suggestions of political support. So um, those the people that are hoping for change are quite optimistic. Fantastic. Also with us is Emma Holden, a strategy and propositions executive at B-Sky-B's data arm SkyIQ. And Vanessa Spock, Director of Marketing for Broadcast Services at Ericsson. Uh, welcome to you both. Pleasure to be here. Likewise. Um, let's start uh, with a bit about Media Summit. For the uninitiated among our listeners, the Media Summit was a creative chinwag on a grand scale, bringing together speakers from the worlds of TV, digital print and advertising. It being part broadcast organised, Telly was one of the main orders of the day, and we'll kick off with uh, Channel 4 Chief Executive David Abraham, who was on stage to talk about C4's data strategy, including how they take advantage of 4OD's 11 million registered users. Within the 11 million, we've created a, a, a super panel called Core 4, in which is being built up to 100,000 people who are now engaging with us at an even deeper level. And there's three main areas that they're sharing uh, their knowledge with us. And this, again, is, is, is making manifest their relationship with Channel 4. Firstly, we are using the panel not to choose programs, but to give us comments about programs. Sometimes we have alternate uh, op opportunities on titles, for example. What do they think of certain pilots? Uh, giving us feedback on programs and testing marketing concepts for how best to uh, summarize uh, a new idea. Just before we get stuck in, Chris, a quick uh, point of order. David Abraham said 100,000 registered users for, for Core. I think it's actually 10,000, uh, which he made clear afterwards. Chris, you were pretty animated by this stuff, the For Core idea. Yeah, I'm a, I think I'm a bit of a data geek, really. I, I kind of get it. I, I think it's really interesting. I think the we, we know that Channel 4 has been pushing this hard for some time. And at the heart of that is its relationship with advertisers and targeted advertising and trying to make free-to-air TV a more effective platform. But what we're starting to see now is, is something a bit deeper, more sophisticated. And Core 4 seems to be a way of really digging down, get it helping Channel 4 achieve those aims, but also they're starting to do things like test program titles, test scheduling decisions, test um, marketing concepts with this group that they're really, really engaged with. And, that, and that's quite fascinating. On that note, let's just hear David Abraham talk a bit more about that. It's thinking about how if we have, for example, um, a programmer 
idea. You know, traditionally, there's been various phases where broadcasters do pre-tests and dial tests and get people's reaction to, say, a pilot. Um, but now there's a, an emerging uh, approach which actually makes the feedback into a game uh, and actually you can sort of incentivize and sort of the, the viewer can kind of win prizes for feeding back as to what they think of, a of an early idea. And so this sort of, again, if you think about how we get close to our audiences, there are lots of really interesting techniques and they're all very nascent and we're, we're starting to look at them where, you know, viewers are asked, how, how, many, how many millions of people do you think might watch this program? And when the program comes out, the nearest person gets it, wins a prize. So you sort of create this social interaction around, and fun around people feeding back to what you're doing. Emma, you work for a data business. Is this, is this sensible stuff, do you think, from Channel 4? Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. The, the traditional broadcast is now moving into sort of new platforms, new devices. And with it is, is a change in the audience, potentially. It could be completely different viewers um, or consumers if you're an advertiser. And I think the big questions being asked of the industry now is what is happening to the audience, the consumer across these different platforms? How are they behaving? How are they engaging? Taking um, David Abraham's point. Should this be the be all and end all for creative decisions? Or does it just help inform things rather than you know provide pointers as to what things should be commissioned and what things should be carried on your platform? Absolutely. I don't believe for one minute that, that data can replace the, the true creative, whether it be advertising content or broadcast content. But I think it can help inform for example, in terms of content, determining the type of genre, not necessarily specifically what actor should be placed um, in a certain role. Uh, what were your thoughts on this, Vanessa? It's absolutely the next step forward. What really struck me about what David said yesterday is that they are a niche channel. You know, the core of what they do and what they provide to the population in the UK is very much catering to niche interests. And the power of what they're doing is, is phenomenal in, in terms of serving their audience and really driving their programming forward and increasing the quality. And because content is king, or as I say, King Kong yesterday, they're making jokes about it. <laughs> it's, it's imperative that they under, every broadcaster understands what their audience wants and when they want it and how they want it on which device. Um, Chris, do you think this is going to become increasingly influential? Yeah, I think it will. I mean, look, David was really clear not to over-egg this in the sense mm -hmm. that it's going to be commissioning by algorithm. Um, you know, it's, it, it's clearly that they're, it, that they're going to rely on their own uh, commissioners and creative teams' understanding of their audiences and their own gut instinct for what will make a great show. They're not going to push it too hard, but it will help. How could it, how could it not help? The other thing that was quite interesting is on another session, Dan, who heads up iPlayer, revealed that some of the shows that were the most shared in I think it was May it was like, like you know last month the most the five most shared things on iPlayer were nowhere near the most watched and it was really interesting there was a documentary about sexism on there which is obviously quite a, a niche uh, mm -hmm. piece of content but it was really well shared and I think it's really interesting all broadcasters are starting to learn through digital through data so much more about their audiences. Martin Drucky from uh, Shed Media. I thought it was really interesting to hear Channel 4 talking about data but I think it'd be really interesting to be able to share some of that with independent producers so we can have some insights when we're going and, and thinking up new ideas so that everybody's on the same page really.
moving on, ITB Chief Executive Adam Crozier also spoke at the event, offering some insight on the commissioning strategy for pay TV drama service ITV Encore, a new female skewing channel ITVB. Uh, let's hear him in conversation with former BBC media correspondent Torin Douglas. We wanted to, first of all, make sure that we were properly investing in the channels that we had and that they were at the right level of quality. Uh, and I think having had 10 years of share viewing decline, um, over the last three or four years, we've generally stabilised viewing. So we've managed to sort of level it out. And indeed, last year, we went up by around 4%, as it said on the screen there. Not such a great start this year. Uh, but uh, so I think we've steadied the ship there and we want to try and build on that and, and be more competitive. Equally, I think there is a, there's two opportunities for us and they're different depending on which of the two channels we're talking about. For, for ITVB, um, we think you know, advertisers really want to reach a young female audience and they pay very good money to do that. Uh, equally, we are very strong in, in scripted reality, both here in the UK and particularly in the US, so we've got the content to be able to do that. And we think there's a chance to improve our competitive position. It also allows us to reshape ITV2 and make that much more focused on young adults and bring in a lot more comedy and various other genres into ITV2. Encore is completely different. We think there is a window for our best drama in between it airing on ITV main channel and ITV3. Uh, and actually the, the newer repeats on ITV3, which is largely on Freeview, don't tend to rate that well, but we think they will uh, rate very well on Sky. And it allows us as well to have an original drama budget for ITV Encore to make some dramas that I think we might not make for the main channel because for the main channel you know if we don't get sort of five million plus we're sort of slightly disappointed in that performance and that's a very high bar and uh, you know if you look at a lot of the very successful drama that's gone around the world it's really high quality often the audiences aren't huge because uh, they're aimed at very particular niches if you think about you know madmen here uh, I think here the latest series is doing around 50,000 people are watching it. Uh, and even Game of Thrones is around one to one and a half million. So they're not huge audiences, but they're, they're very appealing, terrifically high quality mm. programs. And I think we need to think about whether we can uh, do some of that mm. and, and add something to the total mm. ITV offering. So do we think we can expect to see Mad Men and... Game of Thrones style dramas pitching up on Encore next year. I don't. I don't see um, get a Game of Thrones style drama uh, pre Watershed anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, anywhere no, on, on British no, television. No, I wouldn't expect so. We've been trying to get a sense from ITV about Encore and um, what its point of differentiation is for a little while, and this has been the clearest indication. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Again, we talked earlier about niches and. Clearly, this is something that ITV is picking up on. They're looking at, they're thinking obviously about um, exploiting content around the world, and they're looking at these shows. And it's the kind of the flip side to Broadchurch, which is a big gangbusters, nine million viewers, broad whodunit, fantastic that can sell around the world. But also, there's an opportunity for these these more niche shows, which people love with a passion, but um, might not appeal to everyone. Uh, for them to make most of that, it's almost a kind of Sky style. Um, uh, strategy <laughs> <laughs> what would you say about that <laughs> i mean clearly the yes. stats stack up for sky on this don't they it's clearly something that your customers and and your advertisers want isn't it 
Absolutely. I mean, for Sky, the, the customer is the holy grail. And for the advertisers, they're the consumers. And I think Sky's seen this for quite some time, obviously has a huge content budget and is investing more and more in original content. But a lot of it is the smaller audiences, less than 5 million. And certainly from the, the data that we are able to extract from um, our panel, we're able to see that some of the, the stickier programmes aren't necessarily in the top 20 of any of the channels, yet they're very, very important in helping build the channel brand. That's really interesting. So Sky's prepared to invest in things even if it's not getting the big audience because customers want it effectively. Absolutely. I'm Lisa Campbell. I'm the festival director of the Guardian Edinburgh International Television Festival. I thought it was really interesting to hear from Adam Crozier because it's actually quite rare that he makes speeches. I think he was interesting talking about the growth of ITV Studios and rights really and the importance of content for companies worldwide. And you know, he made the point that some of the highest bidders for rights aren't actually broadcasters. They're other companies who are using content as a means to an end rather than the end in itself. So, you know, whether it's BT for uh, broadband customers or to, you know, to upsell them to something else, his views on why people are getting into content outside of broadcasting is interesting. And, you know, he said that doesn't necessarily please TV companies, but um, it's, it, it is the future and, it, it, you know, it's what's happening. Pat Young, formerly Chief Creative Officer of the BBC, now running his own consultancy. Well, I enjoyed Adam Crozier's remarks. I think the turnaround at ITV has been remarkable. But I also applaud him for understanding that the future of this business and this industry is content and intellectual property. And the revitalisation of ITV studios and getting ITV, the broadcaster, to pay proper attention to its own producer, I think is at the core of his turnaround. Uh, other highlights uh, from the Media Summit included YouTube's David Benson providing guidance on how to make content work for the video platform. YouTube isn't television. YouTube is YouTube, to quote Bill Gates. You know, everyone overestimates the change in two years and they underestimate the change in ten. And what it really showed us was there's certain kinds of programming and certain producers who are really capable of making great programming but also engaging with their audiences and sustaining those and actually building their own audience base. Then there are other programmers who can make great programs, but they just sort of leave the kid on the street and hope that people find it. YouTube is brilliant if you're the former. It's not so brilliant if you're the latter. Jamie Oliver is passionate about his audiences. He's passionate about the talent he brings. Um, he's frustrated that there isn't the space in linear TV for him to bring the other chefs that he's found out to the open. So it works. It's a platform. It works brilliantly for him. On the other hand, we found the people who tended to not succeed were the people who are exactly that. We've got great credentials in making linear programming, but we just want to make the program and forget about it. We don't really want to engage with our audiences. So in that sense, it was a fantastic learning experience for us, and it's delivered us the successes we want, and it's given us the strategic direction we need to go in to be successful. Chris, some good advice there for budding producers who, who want to make, work, make stuff work online. Yeah, and, it, and you know what? I thought it was great advice for BBC Three because David was sat there on a panel, um, the guy from Facebook, and more importantly, with Dan Taylor, who uh, sort of heads up iPlayer. And obviously iPlayer, BBC Three, online content, all these things are coming together. What will be really, really interesting is when BBC Three launches online, the extent to which the ambition is to run a web channel rather than a TV channel that happens, to, that happens to be online. And engagement, responding to people, taking some cues from best practice, you know, the kind of things that, that FoodTube 
is doing or vice.com these these kind of players will be really really interesting so i would i think you know listening to david say that absolutely great advice for youtube producers good advice for the bbc i think it was really interesting how they were talking about short form content versus long form what works and what doesn't and it's quite fascinating that it really depends on how you manage it and the branding and the efforts that you put around that content particularly when they try and look at the youth market that supposedly only wants sound bites but it's not exactly true it, it's what you do with that and how you position yourselves i think that's the case for both online and television there is just different mechanisms to do that but it's still essentially about how you position yourselves we'll move on to a, a final little snippet from the from the day chris farah ramzan galant uh, all three media's chief executive was just providing a bit of insight on the discovery and uh, liberty global deal yeah, it's going to be a, a sort of real period of transformation for that business, or, or not, as the case might be. I think they're very clear, certainly, that they're not going to be held to ransom by their, their new owner. And why would they be? You know, what's made all three media successful is a wide range of producers creating a wide range of content across a wide range of genres for a wide range of customers. Now, if you spend several hundred million pounds buying that and then start saying, right, all, all the content's got to come to Discovery, then you're sort of killing the goose that lays the golden egg. So, I, I, you know, that makes perfect sense. I don't think Discovery is going to um, introduce too many changes necessarily. One thing that a, lot, a few people have talked to me about and people mentioned, a few delegates mentioned to me at the Media Summit yesterday is non-qualifying indie status. I mean, we could probably talk about that for ages and it might be a bit dry. It's and a big topic. It could <laughs> be a bit dry and technical, but that it's those kind of repercussions of the deal that we haven't quite managed to work through yet. Yeah, I'm sure they'll come to the fore. Let's just hear Farah in conversation with uh, with Torrin Douglas again. And uh, Stuart Murphy from Sky was also on the panel. The bit is not closed and it's not closed until it's closed. But in the event that it does close, I think the vision of the new shareholders, which itself is quite... And that's un- Discovery and... Um, Discovery and Liberty Global. So it's in itself quite an interesting and unusual new deployment of capital that Discovery and Liberty Global come together to make an unusual 50-50 joint venture, decide between them as mega media brands not to consolidate all three into either company, but to create a third column, which is all three's autonomous column. So I think it's an interesting new way to look at content. And I read somewhere that you know somebody asked a question, a journalist, which is, um, is this a way for Americans to secure content at source? Now, I think secure content at source can be one of two things. It can be either quite sinister, which is, is this a way to enslave content at source? Because what does secure mean? You're either enslaving it or you're emancipating it. And I think what we've seen is a marriage of two mega brands who do who have a symbiotic desire to get into content, who've acquired an asset which will not be consolidated and therefore will be free to be autonomous, free to serve a diversified base of customers, will be serving Stuart and all of Stuart's competitors simultaneously. So that sense of vision that a, a, a very particular animal that is all three, it's made up of 19 companies which are not really companies but tribes, the Mavericks and the Objectives and the North Ones, the Studio Lamberts. So it's a, it's a, whether they're American or not is irrelevant. Their vision is to get to content at source, and their definition of securing it is to set it free into its next chapter. We've come out of a uh, cycle, six-year cycle, of private equity ownership, so we're ready for a strategic thrust. And I think they bought our vision, they bought our strategy, and they put some cash on the table. We'll leave it there for now, but thanks to Chris, Emma and Vanessa. Before we go, here's a few more thoughts from some of the delegates on the day. Dan Korn, I'm Head of Programming for Discovery Western Europe. 
it's it's a it's a really interesting thing. Convergence does seem to be happening, and the two things have a very symbiotic relationship. But it's still not completely sort of complementary yet. You know, it was interesting hearing from the panelists because obviously they're you know YouTube and Facebook and all the rest of it, and they are very bullish, seeing their numbers grow. But I still think there's a sort of not a complete understanding of how the two things work completely complementary together. So it's a massive part of what we're doing. Obviously, we, we, you know, we have a significant online presence, but we have to be terribly careful and protective of our television arrangements and relationships with our affiliates. So working out where the sweet spot is is a really sort of complex thing. I'm not sure we're there yet. Hi, I'm Margaret from Epic TV. We're an online extreme sports channel and a distribution company for the best action sports content around the world. What's been really interesting is looking at things like BT, where there's a sort of back-end product. And we're looking at the moment at the fact that GoPro have announced they're going to launch a media company. We've got Red Bull, who also do similar stuff. And Vice obviously have magazines that they work with. So it's looking at how there's back-end products and it's not just an advertising-led industry anymore. Hi, I'm Liam Hamilton, Deputy Director of Content, Scottish Television. There are many more outlets and we're investigating them and to some extent pitching to them. But in terms of profitable production, it's still very much dominated by the established broadcasters, the BBCs, the, the, the ITVs of this world, who effectively fully fund production. Many of these new players are looking at different models. Quite right, from their perspective, for, for their business model, it clearly has issues in terms of us adapting to that. I was really interesting hearing the speaker from Vice talking about their business model and the assumption that the wider media makes that young people are a bit stupid, they can only consume content in short amounts and that actually long format stuff if presented in an understandable way with presenters that people can relate to works really well for them. So that's something I'm excited to go and talk to our company about. Finally, this episode, a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. He's the writer who's given us iconic screen adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, House of Cards and Bleak House, but success has not dimmed his prolific output. Andrew Davis is currently adapting Tolstoy's War and Peace into the most ambitious BBC drama ever, while other recent work includes Dylan Thomas' biopic A Poet in New York and ITV's Mr Selfridge. Quirk, another of Davis's adaptations, is currently airing on BBC One and is based on the books of John Banville. The noir drama stars Gabriel Byrne as the chief pathologist in a 1950s Dublin morgue. And before bringing Andrew in, here's Byrne in action as Quirk. So let's say Christian Ford had been here. What, what would have happened to her baby? And the babies go to an orphanage, of course. Like Carrick Lee? Yes, if they're boys. That's what they did with me. So that's why you're so interested? Only partially. Carrick Lee was a... It's a bleak place. A little bit like this, if you'll allow me to say. Dr. Crook. The girls who come here find themselves in trouble with no one to help. Their families reject them. That's when they're sent here. We do the best we can for them. Oh, I'm sure you're a great comfort to them. Welcome, Andrew. Oh, thank you. I was wondering if you might be able to just, before we crack on with some stuff about Quirk, describe that, that eureka moment to us when you decide that a particular book is something you'd like to adapt. 
Well, uh, or is it different in every case? And it is. It is different uh, in every case. Uh, uh, and tipping the velvet, it was the point at which um, the heroine uh, appears uh, dressed in the top half of a guardsman's uniform, uh, nothing else on underneath except an enormous dildo, and I, I thought. <laughs> That's something that's never been seen on television I'd like before. To see that on the I'd, I'd, I'd love to see that on the screen, uh, but but seriously, I'd, I'd been already kind of you know blown away by that book. Um, with the Quirk books, I didn't know anything about them. I didn't know John. I loved John Banville's literary novels. I didn't know he wrote them, so it was a, it was a joy to discover them, and um, they're absolutely beautifully written. The characters feel so real and so rich and the relationships are so complicated. So I was thinking by the time I was I was about three or four pages in, I was thinking that, you know, this is going to be good. I, I'd really love to do this. So were you approached with the idea or did you did you take I was it to, approached. To I, I I was approached, yes. I'm, I'm, uh, is that often know, the way? If that's that's the way it usually happens. Less frequently, I'll come across a book myself that I really like, and I'll I'll suggest it to them. And I'm sure they they, they snap your snap your hand off uh, when um, when you come with a suggestion. Yeah, well, they <laughs> I, they, they certainly they're certainly interested. Yeah. Yeah. What was it attracted to you about Quirk? What drew you to the character? I think the uh, the darkness of it. I liked that it was set in the 50s because I actually go back as far as the 50s. Um, <laughs> I didn't know Dublin in the 50s, but, um, yeah, people talk about it as a dull decade, but um, when you're young, um, everything's exciting. And um, But I guess uh, I, I'm in this, this terrible family situation. There he is. He's, uh, he's uh, a borderline alcoholic, just about holding down He's drinking nearly as, every scene. Yes, yes. And... Um, uh, he's in love with his brother's wife, except his brother isn't really his brother because Quirk himself was adopted. He has a daughter who doesn't know she's his daughter. She thinks she's his niece, and she's in love with Quirk. It's such a, a rich and messy situation um, and delightful to explore, yeah. really. So where do you start with an adaptation? What, what are your writing patterns and how often are you sat at your desk typing away? Generally, um, if it's a big, long book like, like War and Peace... Um, I've got one strategy, which which is to get a talking book of it and uh, go for long drives in the car and just listen to it over and over. I find that kind really, of more, rest, absorb more restful than reading and somehow easier to um, imagine it visually. Uh, although I do try to look out for <laughs> sort of road hazards as well. <laughs> um, but I do that and then... There's a process of, of, of sort of nitty-gritty chopping it up into into episodes and trying to work out uh, how long each one would be and uh, sort of discussing that with, with the broadcaster, how, you know, how many the broadcaster wants. Are you trusted and, with that process on the whole? Yeah, it's a collaborative process. So I remember with, with War and Peace... Um, you know, it's such a big book. It could be anything from four hours to twelve hours, I guess. And um, 
Uh, what have you plumbed we, for we, in the end? We, six. six. We, we settled on 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 six, <laughs> so you met which, halfway, is, which is on the tight side, really. But but I think that's good uh, if you've got a sense that every episode is absolutely crammed with terrific scenes. That, yeah. that's good. I always admire writers uh, and the you know the sort of curse of the blank page. Is that something you ever encounter? Do you, do you get writer's block? And how, uh, how do you push through that? I've only once had really serious writer's block, um, which was, came when I, uh, uh, when I gave up the day job, because um, I, I was combining writing with um, university teaching for a long time. I was about to start the second series of Very Peculiar Practice, which wasn't an adaptation. It was all original. When I came to start that, it was something to do with not being able to uh, sort of bounce off my colleagues and just being, for the first time in my life, really, sort of alone all day, every day, with, with you know, the blank screen. Or I think it was blank page in those days, yeah. Um, I just thought, I can't think of anything that, that satisfies me at all. But luckily, I mean, it was a series and, and a second series and people were waiting for me to do it and people were waiting to start work. I mean, they couldn't start work until I'd done my work. You had to do it. <laughs> so, uh, so the director, David Tucker, took me off to his house and, and said, you know, you're going to stay here and we go to the pub every day and talk about this thing and I'm not letting you go home until we've roughed out a structure for the first episode and... Um, and you, uh, since talked then, about, I've really never been blocked in a yeah. serious way. Uh, you've talked about Sunday being your most productive day. Is that, is that right? I, I read that somewhere. Um, <laughs> no? Not necessarily. I, I, I do a bit of work every day. But I think it's been a good day if, if I've got as much as two hours of real work out of myself. Even though on a normal day I'll, I'll keep more or less office hours. But... Um, I waste just as much time as anybody else does, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, answering emails, uh, Googling myself, you know, <laughs> playing games and so on. Yeah, but a bit of procrastination. Uh, watching things always, on Netflix, well. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Quirk has not escaped the mumbling complaints that dogged uh, BBC One's recent adaptation of Jamaica in. I mean, you've, you've talked a little bit about this in the last couple of days or so and said you've watched it with... Uh, subtitles yourself. I mean, do you think the complaints have been unfair? Well, if people can't hear what is going on, you you know, you've got to believe them. They, they're, they're not making it up. But I think with Quirk, not necessarily the, the programme's fault. We had, a, we had a screening of it last year because it, the transmission got delayed quite a long time. And the sound was absolutely perfectly clear at that screening. So I think it's it's at least partly to do with the bad quality sound on uh, modern flat screen do you TVs. Think so? uh, yeah, I mean, the, the sound on uh, TV at, at home is, is not very good. But I have to say also, uh, uh, my wife and I, we're both in our 70s and um, <laughs> we find it more comfortable to watch quite a, quite a few things with the <laughs> subtitles on so you can get the dialogue with with absolute clarity i mean gabriel does bring a certain mysteriousness to his character uh, so do you think some of the, uh, some of his lines have to be delivered in sort of hushed tones well he's he's got a lovely soft irish voice mm. but um but i think in in that uh, in that clip that you played 
his his dialogue was perfectly clear, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, Quirk is a, a co-production between BBC and RTE. I mean, it, is the increasingly international nature of drama a blessing for creatives? It can be, uh, but... Uh, it can't be it, as well. <laughs> it, it can't be. I, I mean... Remember, like about twenty years ago, the Euro pudding, uh, where drama things... drama people love this phrase, the Euro pudding. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it's because money was coming in from about four or five different countries, and you also had to have creative input from them, and so you, you'd get sometimes an Italian actor who couldn't really speak English at all, or whatever. Uh, but he was and, there to satisfy a co-production partner. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, but that's no longer the case. You don't think you know, it that, doesn't that, that, seem to be. I think I think people are, are more intelligent about uh, about how they do it now. And do you think drama's as healthy as it's ever been in the UK? It's pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty exciting. <laughs> I was having a huge conversation last night over dinner about 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 the last episode of Happy Valley, which is you know it's it's pretty good when when there's TV that you really want to talk about. I mean, you mentioned Netflix earlier. Yeah. Uh, what have you made of the emergence of online players? It's been very bad for my work habits because... Uh, uh, <laughs> because you're watching because so Because I content. can actually watch it on my work computer, you see. <laughs> uh, and my wife thinks I'm hard at work and she's sort of, uh, you, know, you, you know, wouldn't you like to come down and, you know... Have a cup of tea, you poor bugger. And I, I've just quickly changed the screen yeah, from, yeah, from House of Cards yeah. or, 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 or Orange is the New Black or whatever. What do you make of House of Cards on Netflix? I love it. Love it, absolutely. Uh, um, do you think it does your work justice? I, I, yeah, I'm, it's I, very I like, isn't it? Yeah, I like it. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's kind of homage to the... Or homage to the original <laughs> House of Cards. Um, so, uh, so that's so good, and it's it's intriguing to see the differences, and and you know, from to do with American politics, and uh, and also to do with the long length of the uh, of a season, the number of episodes. So the story has to be more complicated, more spun out. So it's, it's been fascinating to watch. Can't wait for the third series. Yeah, neither can I. Um, just finally, before before you leave us, um, do you, have you still got the appetite? I mean, is is War and Peace going to be your song song? Are you going to carry on? Oh God, for no, no, I'm I'm going to carry on. I'm already working on on more things for the. What are you working on, Andrew? Can you tell us? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing um, two part, uh, probably for the BBC about the first four minute mile. I'm adapting uh, a novel called The Misogynist by Piers Paul Reed uh, for a possible movie. That's about it at the moment. Sounds, yeah. sounds like enough, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I like to, you know, I like to keep busy. Yeah, and War and Peace, uh, that, that, that's coming up in, in a couple of years, is that right? Um, yeah, they're going to film it starting in January next year. So I suppose there's an outside chance it might be on the screen in the end of 2015, more likely, um, uh, you know, January 2016. Well, we look forward to that and all, all of your other work. Uh, thank you very much for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure, Andrew. Uh, Quirk concludes on BBC One this Sunday at 9pm. Uh, that's all we've got time for on this edition of Talking TV. Remember, you can find a load more information about Media Summit and Creative Week on broadcastnow.co.uk. It'll be business as usual in a fortnight when we'll be back with some previews. Until then, my thanks to all of our guests, Chris Curtis, Emma Holden, Vanessa Spock, and of course, Andrew Davis. 
The producer was a mercurial Matt Hill and I've been Jake Cantor. See you in a couple of weeks. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 